And there's just a much more relaxed and kind of more mature way of thinking about actually a business. And also what we saw from these communities is you don't need thousands and thousands of people in a community to make a decent amount of money, whereas you need millions and millions of followers to make pennies you know, on the social platform. So we were starting to see those two things diverge. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. Today's episode is a bonus one. I normally don't do episodes midweek, but I could not wait to get this one out and share it with you. I had a great conversation a couple weeks ago on January 19th. I co-hosted a webinar that was all about the creative economy, where things are going, what are some common struggles and opportunities that creators are faced with right now, and where will the opportunities lie for the rest of 2022 and moving forward. I was joined by two people who are experts in this space who I think get it better than most. I was joined by Gina Bianchini, who is the co-founder and CEO of Mighty Networks, which is an all-in-one platform that provides creators what they need to build their community, run courses, and host live stream conversations and many more. And I was also joined by Zoe Skamen, who is a brand strategist that studies this space. She also runs her own studio called Bodacious, and Zoe actually commissioned and well, she didn't Mighty Networks commissioned it, but Zoe had done the work behind the first ever independent study that was all about the creator economy. If you haven't checked it out yet, highly recommend. We will have the link to it in the show notes. It's called The New Creator Manifesto. And it's a breakdown on how we went from the creator economy to the community economy. And if you think about how many creators have faced burnout, they faced frustration, this feeling of always needing to be on this treadmill of creating content day by day by day. We talk about that and Zoe's research backs a lot of that up. And then we also talk about what trends are ahead. What does it look like for Web3? What does it look like for the rest of 2022? That and a whole lot more. As I mentioned, Zoe and Gina are two experts when it comes to this, and it was great to have this conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right. So thanks everyone for joining here. This is awesome. We have over 500 people signed up, exciting from all over. I'm seeing DC, Netherlands, Hoboken. First off, thanks. Really excited about this. As most of you know, this is a conversation we're going to have that is all about the creator economy, Web3, and where things are going. And one of the reasons we're having this chat is because, as many of you know, uh, my name is Dan Runcy. I'm the founder of Trapital, and last year had started talking a bit more closely with Mighty Networks and had learned about this report that they put out last year. It's called the New Creator Manifesto. And this was one of the more fascinating studies that was released on the creator economy and so many of the trends that are happening in this space. And what I think it did, I think it unearthed and it surfaced a lot of the challenges that get swept under the rug. We always want to talk about the highlights and what's sexy about the creator economy, but few people really go in depth with the challenges. And this is a great opportunity to bring together the creator of that report, Zoe Skamen, who is here with us, and then also the founder and CEO of Mighty Networks, Gina Bianchini. So I'll pass it off to both of them to do introductions and 
they can. And then after that, we can talk a bit more about the setup itself for the day. Maybe I can just, you know, as an introduction of you, Zoe, but also this report, given the fact, you know, we wrote the check for it and then walked away and made sure that it was both super independent and also really was the largest creator economy survey ever done, but also was not about shilling any individual platform, including even some amazing platforms like Mighty Networks. And so we were incredibly lucky to find Zoe, who was basically like, hey, let's do this. This will be really interesting. And then Nonfiction, which is an independent research firm that that did the actual survey results. And you know, I'll hand it over to you, Zoe. But I think in terms of what we found was both really surprising and more surprising, if anything, for the solutions that have emerged. And we're already seeing these in the questions. That's one other thing. Just wanted to really say thank you to Dan, but also, you know, Zoe, you led the charge on this and we were incredibly lucky to have you as, as a strategist and really somebody with their finger on the pulse of what is happening, not just in the creator economy, but well beyond that as well. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, just by way of introduction, I am a strategist. I've got my own consultancy in London. I've been chatting to Gina for, God, I don't know, maybe a year, maybe a bit less, can't even remember. And we decided that we wanted to actually do a proper report on the creator economy as it stood. I think there was a lot of hype. There was a lot of excitement, but from a mighty perspective and also the perspective that I was seeing, there was also a bit of a dark side emerging. And we wanted to understand what the pain points were and what people were going through But we also wanted to understand how some people were getting out the other side of that to try and find new models, new ways of operating that gave them back a little bit of that freedom and it gave them a little bit of that joy. And they didn't necessarily feel that they were running on a social media treadmill, bowing to the algorithmic gods, desperately just trying to stay upright each day. So that was kind of the purpose of the study. And I think we found so much that we were kind of expecting and also a lot that we were not expecting. And I think it just depressed us initially and then gave us a huge amount of hope for where things are going next. And then, you know, both Gina and I have been kind of heavily into the world of sort of Web3 and communities and where that's going as well. And it just feels like a natural extension to what we found in the report as well. Zoe, that's great. That's actually a great place to kick things off because one of the things I was curious about is obviously you do a report like this. I'm sure you have a pretty clear idea of some things that you may find or what may come up through the research, but What surprised you? Was there anything you saw that was like, oh, wow, I didn't expect to learn this or I didn't expect this to come out of the results? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the big things that, I mean, I guess I I don't want to be too depressing to start off with, but one of the things that surprised me initially was how unhappy so many of the creators were that we spoke to. And I thought that maybe, I don't know, off the top of my head, I thought maybe like 30% would be quite stressed. And the rest would be like, this is a bit shit, but you know, I'm managing and at least I get to do kind of a direct to fan model and it's really interesting and I get to feed into my community and vice versa. And the numbers that came out were pretty high in comparison to that. So I think it was around 93% of creators so that it was actually having a negative impact on their lives. A lot of them were saying they were incredibly stressed. A lot of them were saying, I'm not sure it's worth it anymore. I don't know how to do this. I feel trapped. And you know, that was pretty harrowing initially. And I think especially considering we had so many reports and articles coming out at the time, which were going, you know, the creator economy is the next big thing. It's all democratic. It's all open. Anyone can be a creator. It's super fun. It's really easy. And then you had these kids, essentially with the kind of younger cohort that we spoke to, who felt like they were on a treadmill. They were not sleeping properly. 
And they just did not know how to continue to play the game that the algorithms from the big social networks demanded of them without completely burning out. So I think that was one of the first kind of really surprising things that stood out for me as well. Gina, I don't know if that was the same for you. For sure. I I would say just to build on that, we had been seeing anecdotally on Mighty people showing up and just being exhausted and asking themselves, there's got to be another way to the point where I was uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to see us commission this, again, independent research is because I was seeing such a disconnect. And I think this is what played out in the research, certainly at higher percentages than we thought. But this notion that everybody's supposed to put on like a happy face and that human beings are supposed to produce the volume of content that social media expects from them in order to just stay like in the mix. And I think that that was, you know, again, depressing and surprising at the volume. The thing that I would say, though, that was, was, and Zoe, I think you and I talked about this, is what was really fun to see, though, was this new sort of emerging vanguard of creators who are, and I, I think it's only sort of been building momentum around, wait a second, like, this is not what I want. Like, this is not sustainable. This is not what I want. What the promise of the creator economy is and the reality of the creator economy, like we can do something different here. And I think that that really came out in spades. That makes sense because I think that one of the things with social media in general and why I think so many creators got excited was you see how easy it is to do it. And then it's like, oh yeah, well, I can do that too. But that dynamic, I think, lends itself to the same type of yeah. experience where the people at the top are winning, but everyone else isn't. It's this standard right. power law type dynamic. But yeah. what I liked about what you all uncovered is that, yeah, that power law may exist for certain types of social media, but there is a broader long tail that does have plenty of space and opportunity that doesn't get as much focus, that doesn't get as much attention, and likely could be a more realistic and happier solution for a lot of creators. For sure. Liana just said something, you know, it's when the posting inevitably becomes more important than the work that it actually negatively affects your ability to do the work itself. And I think that that is just so, so well said. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that kind of new vanguard and the sort of new potential that you mentioned is the opposite of everything that we had been sold and everything that we've been told from the social media platform. So the social media platform playbook is more followers, more engagement, you know, more likes, more comments, more shares, and it's just kind of more, 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 more. So it's all about growth. And obviously trying to create the amount of content that you need to get growth when you've got those algorithms in place. So, you know, for example, TikTok creators, we're trying to release potentially four or five different TikToks per day. And obviously at the same time, they're having to film it, ideate it, change their clothes, update it, respond to comments. It's just not sustainable in that front. And then Instagram, exactly the same in terms of, you know, you've got to have a huge amount of followers to then be able to try and figure out how you can monetize your audience by mostly doing jazz hands to brands saying, please sponsor my posts. You know, let me hold up a can of something in front of an image and smile. And then you might give me a couple of thousand dollars for it. And, you know, the same was true on YouTube, the same was true on you know other platforms as well. And then obviously what we were starting to see is that long tail who suffer in that kind of market, who aren't making it absolutely massive, who don't have millions and millions of followers, were kind of sat there scratching their heads going, well, how the hell do we, are we supposed to play this game? It's just not possible. 
And then the vanguard that we were talking to said, well, I don't feel like I have to play that game. I've almost kind of stepped off that treadmill and found something else. And what they were finding is rather than kind of going after the millions of followers, the shitloads of likes, the posts, all this kind of stuff is they were building really small initially kind of groups of people. So communities who they potentially had siphoned off from the social media platforms and they were building their own community spaces. And in those community spaces, they could connect people. So their role is not necessarily just creator, but also facilitator of that community and of that membership around a shared passion, which is obviously what they were standing for initially on the social platforms. And suddenly they could take their foot off the gas a little bit because actually one of the roles they were playing was that connection. So it wasn't all about them being atop a pedestal, having to constantly broadcast down to an audience. It was more that the members were kind of hanging out together, having a lovely time between themselves without having to necessarily rely so much on the creator driving that, which was one of the big things around facilitating community. But also they were not at the mercy of an algorithm because those algorithms don't exist in those spaces. They could think about their own rhythm in terms of content. They could think about their own monetization models. So they weren't desperately trying to earn stars virtual currency on Facebook live streams, for example. And there's just a much more relaxed and kind of more mature way of thinking about actually a business. And also what we saw from these communities is you don't need thousands and thousands of people in a community to make a decent amount of money, whereas you need millions and millions of followers to make pennies you know, on the social platform. So we were starting to see those two things diverge. And what was more interesting to me is the people who were still running on the treadmill on the social platforms hadn't quite realized that there was another option. And they also hadn't realized that they didn't own any of what they were building. So when we did bring it up with them, you know, in some qual conversations, when we said, you know, you don't own your Instagram following, because if you ever wanted to pick them up and take them somewhere else, you can't, you don't have their email addresses. There was a light bulb going off going, oh, shit. So I actually don't own any of this. And I think, you know, some of that stuff is starting to come into public consciousness, you know, with OnlyFans, for example, pulling the rug from sex workers only to put it back a few days later. That sense of deep insecurity is starting to come to the fore and people are waking up to the fact that they're building on these platforms, but they own none of it. I mean, I would even I would even point that out about Discord. So, yes, you can have private chats, but there's no emails. There's no ability to pull people into your own your own world which again, I think to be successful and sustainable as a creator, paying more attention to what you own and how you own it Mm. is going to become essential to this next chapter. Definitely, because one of the things I see too is that people obviously porting and trying to find, okay, how can I use social media to not just be the main thing I'm focusing on, but how can it benefit other things? Even if you're selling some type of product, or some other type of service, what is the thing in between that you do own? So how can you still have that type of tie with the audience that you have, especially the people that are closest to you, but there's still a balance. I've noticed with the people that have that value and wanted to keep that there, but they're still knowing that they need to generate some type of interest and generate some type of attention on social media, but still Mm -hmm. trying to avoid those burnout levels. I think Mm -hmm. the good thing is that once they're able to maybe quantify things a bit more and you realize, and I think this is one of the things that stuck out with the study, is that, yeah, on a lot of these ownership-based platforms, you only need a few hundred fans. And if they are likely targeted directly to the type of thing you're doing in the first place and you have the right products or the right community dynamic, it can be very advantageous, not just for you, but for everyone else. And I think that's where 
things are going. And I think sometimes that shiny toy dynamic, whether it is, oh, TikTok's blowing up, let me move to TikTok, or even more on a Web3 perspective, oh, all the conversations are happening on Discord. When we started Discord, it just doesn't happen in that same type of way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, it's just thinking about how can you still use social media platforms for the role that they are really good at, which is mass eyeballs, distribution, discoverability. But then you actually supplement that with that ownership layer of kind of funneling people off into a community that you own, that you can control, that you can monetize in any way you choose. It could be subscription. It could be selling courses. It could be selling a product line. It could be doing kind of event ticketing, you know, whatever it is that you can imagine. It could be selling albums. It could be, you know, selling books, whatever it is that you're kind of funneling them away and you're kind of putting them somewhere else. And you're never necessarily going to have the same match in terms of you might have 50,000 followers on Instagram and 500 in your community, but that doesn't really matter because actually the way that you monetize the smaller number, the 500, that can give you your peace of mind, that can give you your kind of proper income. And it can also mean that you can maybe take a few days off now and again. I mean, I sure saw something recently from Ninja, the gaming streamer, and he said he was sick for a few days and took a few days off from streaming. He lost 400,000 followers from just taking a few days off streaming. That is unbelievable stress. You know, and he said, you know, the finishing off that tweet, I think it was a tweet, he said, back to grinding tomorrow. And I was like, God, that's depressing. You know, can you imagine just taking a little bit of time to yourself and losing followers because you're not on that treadmill of the algorithm that you have to keep producing stuff? Whereas from a community perspective, as I mentioned, you can have a rhythm that allows you to monetize on a way that is more accessible for your community. So they're not having kind of being fed over the top of stuff on an everyday basis, but also that's more manageable for you. And at the same time, that connection role that you're playing as a creator, bringing like-minded people together and facilitating those relationships, those reciprocal ties means that sometimes you can just back off because it's not all about you anymore. And some creators might not like that in the first instance, but actually it's a it's a much healthier and happier way to operate. One of the things just to, you know, has consistently had me scratching my head is, you know, we've figured out some really healthy business models in Silicon Valley beyond the algorithmic ad world, namely ongoing subscriptions. And specifically, ongoing subscriptions to businesses where the value of the business is connecting people to each other. So as, as Zoe was just saying, instead of this massive audience that only shows up if you are producing content, Silicon Valley has built some of the most successful, most valuable businesses in the world by saying, actually, people don't necessarily want to hear from me. They want to meet and build relationships with each other that are going to be the most relevant, the most valuable. Like, you know, we as human beings feed off of each other's stories and experiences and ideas. Mm -hmm. And so what's so interesting to me is, you know, we've, we've figured these things out. So SaaS businesses, software as a service businesses in Silicon Valley are valued dramatically higher for the same dollar of revenue as an e-commerce business, where it's like you got to fight for every dollar or even brand advertising businesses or other kinds of, again, the breakdown is in the research in terms of how creators are making money. So the thing that I think has just always been a little bit of a head scratcher is that this model is not it's not that controversial. It's pretty obvious in terms of you build your audience or if you already have an audience. The thing that's also really interesting about this new vanguard of creators is they're also saying, I don't actually need to spend as much time building a massive audience because 
it's more valuable for me to have my own, you know, my own corner of the internet where I'm running subscriptions, like where I have a membership and where the value of what I'm doing is actually connecting people to each other around something that is actually important to them. And I think that the most sustainable creator businesses from here will be how you pull people together that have that shared interest, that shared passion, that shared goal. Is it going to work for every creator? Look, the reality is people are, you know, excited to join big spectacles from Mr. Beast or, you know, the, the Nelf Brothers. Like there's going to be a lot of experimentation. The more that you can have that foundational level of a subscription business connecting people to each other, it's just so sustainable. For example, on Mighty, we see 91% of member subscriptions are still with our our creators after a year. 91%. That's a high number of having a repeatable, scalable revenue stream. And I think we're going to just see more and more of, of those going forward. Because again, we figured it out. Like creators deserve this. Yeah. Yeah. And Gina, you had um, put out a tweet recently that was similar along these trends. I think you had said that you predict that community innovation is going to continue to accelerate, not just with Web3 and Web2. And I think a lot of it is along those lines. We've done some of this before in SaaS. We can apply some of these benefits here. Are there any other specific ways that you see that outfolding or unfolding in the next year or so? You know, I think the the big one is how we continue to navigate the buzzwords and the places where there's excitement, like, and if, I mean, I'm looking at the questions. It's like, NFTs, what do you think of Web3? Like, you know, and I have lots of opinions about this stuff. They all come down to a trick that I certainly have, which is to just take the buzzwords, put them over on the side, and then basically go back to what is the value? So the idea that creators have built audiences that are going to increasingly, the value is not going to be in the audience. The value is going to be in the network that is being created between those followers, between those audience members. You see very quickly how that bridge goes into, well, what is that community going to do together? Should it be a membership subscription alone where I pay you? Or is it better to create an economy that again, you know, any economy is basically the sum of the people who believe in it and attribute value to it. So you have that, that shared upside, you know, that, that shared economy, it's just kind of obvious that there's going to be a tremendous amount of experimentation in that. It doesn't really matter whether it's on chain or not. It's about how is this group of people coming together to create value to share in the value that's created. And I just, I'm a passionate believer that communities are the single best way to realize the people that we want to be, change our habits, build new habits, reinforce, you know, practices that are important to us, learn. I think that just the merging of online education and online community just is obvious. And as we start to see more and more of these models evolve and develop, I think community becomes even more important. So I just, I'm a passionate believer in building community because it's so powerful, independent of new sources of shared upside and new currencies that, you know, have speculation associated with them. And they're really fun and valuable. So those would be some of the things that I'm paying attention to for sure. Zoe, what are your thoughts on that? 
because I know that you consult and work with a lot of big brands and companies. They're likely asking you many of these same questions for help. What are some of those common things or insights that you're sharing with them? Well, I think on the forefront of every big brand at the moment is, do we need to do NFTs? Uh, how do we jump into Web3? All of that kind of stuff. And I think, I think again, you know, in a very similar vein to what uh, Gina was saying, it's about kind of putting the, the buzzwords to one side and actually thinking about what does this technology enable? What does it actually allow us to cultivate? And I think it goes back to this idea of community, but more importantly, shared upside. And so it's this idea of looking at the, basically the future of the creator economy. And I think we sort of hinted at it in the report towards the end. And we said that we've been talking about the creator economy, you know, for the last two years, and it's been a really, really big thing. But actually, what is happening within the creator economy that is ushering in the next piece, which we're calling the kind of community economy, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And essentially what's been happening is creators have been fostering connections with audiences, with communities in such a way that they were becoming reciprocal. They were becoming collaborative in a certain way. And those communities were kind of building together. And now what we're starting to see is the emergence of communities that are kind of headless in a way with no creator at the top who were coming together to do incredible stuff. And, you know, in Web3 parlance, that's called a DAO. So, you know, decentralized autonomous organization, which is essentially a community with a bank account. Uh, you know, shared capital that they can do interesting stuff with. But at the heart of that is still community. So when I'm talking to a lot of brands at the moment, I'm not necessarily saying, yes, let's jump on blockchain, let's do NFT drops, let's do all of this kind of stuff. Instead, I'm saying, how do you start to cultivate community within your organization or within your customer set? Why would you do that? So what is the value of you having a community? Is it important? Is it not important? What would the role of that community be? And then how do you start to open up to this kind of area of collaboration, which again is a behavior that's being learned through the creator economy by loads of people who are part of those fandoms who are saying, I can go and speak to my favorite Twitch artist. You know, if you're a fan of T-Pain, for example, on Twitch, you can co-write a song with him, which he does on a regular basis and then kind of release that as music. So that is becoming a kind of learned behavior. And again, brands need to look at that. And then and only then do they need to start looking at the equity layer and actually start looking at, you know, tokens or NFTs when they can start to figure out what is that equity layer rewarding or cultivating when it comes to a behavior within their customer set. So it's always looking at community first, then opening up, you know, towards kind of autonomy in terms of looking at allowing them to be autonomous with creative contributions, that kind of stuff, and then looking at the equity layer afterwards. But I'm much more a fan of, of actually looking at it on that trajectory as opposed to dropping a bunch of shitty nfts of you know microphones with wigs on them which is what pepsi did recently um steve in the in in the chat is bringing up a good point as well which are people are willing to contribute to a community they love and not expect or want anything in return i think that that is absolutely true steve i think when i look at whether it's nfts or tokens or you know play to earn models or contribute to earn models i just look at it as it's another tool in our toolbox as designers of thriving communities that bring value to people so i think that you know we have data for example at mighty that says engagement on or within communities that have a paid membership model or a, a paid course have, I think it's six times the engagement of a free community because people pay attention to what they pay for. So I think there's going to be continued experimentation that says, look, if I am paying attention to what I pay for as a subscription, 
There's going to be communities that I want to be a part of for that reason. There's going to be communities that I want to be a part of for free for different reasons. But also there may be places where I am motivated. I'm more motivated based on contributing to earn or because I'm buying into something that has the ability to appreciate in a way that a subscription doesn't. So I think I think all of this is fascinating. I also think it is all independent of one of the questions that we have here from, I think it's Aisha, which says, you know, how do we attract the right community to get on board? You know, and that, whether it is free, whether it is paid, whether it is a course, whether it is a NFT drop and community, whether it is a social token, in all cases, it doesn't take away from how to create a thriving community. And if anything, I think, Zoe, you've done such a great job of of highlighting this, which is you can't mask over a shitty community with an NFT, in part because there's another NFT coming right after it. So if the only reason people are in a community is for the speculation of a coin or speculation of the of the NFT, your sustainability, we're right back at square one, where sustainability and scalability just isn't there. Agree. And I think you know, we've seen that in a lot of NFT communities where it almost became formulaic, you know, drop 10,000 iterative generative photos of an animal, open up a Discord, job done to the moon, and we're fine. And I think, you know, one of the big lessons that came out of all of that is people were getting into these discords and they're just like, oh, this is really hard. Why aren't these people sticking around? And it's because you can't just open a platform, dump a bunch of people in there and be like, right, go for it. You know, it has to have intentional design around it. You have to think about incentives. You have to think about, you know, how you're actually going to have a rhythm of communication with people. How do you make sure that people are catching up if they're not coming regularly? They're unlikely to check it daily. They've got shit to do. So how are you kind of bringing them back for regular peaks and troughs of, you know, different moments in time? How are you starting to make it stickier? And all of those things come back to the fundamentals of community design. And I think we're going to start to see more and more of that as people start to edge more into this importance of community around NFT projects, around DAOs. We've seen a lot of people set up DAOs and then they're crashing and burning because again, they're not thinking about community design, incentive design. And I think we need to start to marry what we have known for you know the last 10 years in this particular space with now this kind of tokenization and NFT element because they are one and the same. And as you said, the tokens and the NFTs are just the infrastructure or another lever to pull. You know, they are not the be all and end all. Right. I think for a lot of creators, they should look at this no different than how they may think of web two type of applications that they would want to expand in, right? It goes back to, you know, what is the strategy? What's the mission that you're trying to accomplish overall with the company? I even remember people reminding me of this back in the early days of Trapital, like, no, this isn't just a newsletter. You need to think about this holistically. What is the purpose of this? Because then that can help answer questions like, should you do a podcast? Should you do a clubhouse room? Should you be on TikTok? All of those things and the decision of whether to start a DAO, NFT, I think are similarly along that same type of path. I think Adam, that answers your question where, Dan, I'm curious if you think of Travital as a community and do you want it to be versus a brand versus an audience? 
Yeah, great question. So it's interesting because I've gone through a few iterations of this myself with Trapital. When I had first started it in the early days, I did have a paid newsletter that operated more as a membership. There was a Slack group around it. It was an annual thing and there were discussions, there were annual meetups, you know, in the pre-pandemic times, a lot of them in person too. But then with the pandemic and then just shifts for what I saw the best opportunity, I didn't see myself as having the most amount of time to be able to do everything that I wanted to to make the community as strong as it could be. So I said, you know what? Let me focus on the things that I think make the most sense. And my main objective, at least for the time being, was to make sure that I have the content to continue to reach and attract, making sure that it's reaching the right audience. Then I can come back and spend the time to make sure that there's people that can help support and bring each of those elements in. So I haven't had a in-person event since pre-pandemic, but I can't wait till I actually can be able to go and do that because now it's much larger and I can do more of those things. I think for me at the time, a lot of the things we talked about with burnout and a lot of those things, I experienced all that because even though I knew these were the right things to do, there was just so much things that needed to get done. And I just found myself stretched thin and frankly stressed out at the time. So I said, I need to continue to establish myself, build the audience. And I think as things grow, I would like to be able to do more of the community building because yeah, if I'm being honest right now, it's much more of that audience perspective. But I think it also, I think a lot of these things depend on, you know, what the main goals are for the company or for the organization and where they lie. But I think from a focus perspective, it allowed me by sunsetting that and then going back to monetizing more so through sponsorships and speaking and some of the other things I have planned for the future, it allowed me to be a bit more focused on what's allowed travel to be where it is now. Yeah. Adam likes your answer. (laughs) And well, and, and here's the thing, the one thing that I would say that came out in the research and that we certainly see as well is you can build things differently as well. You know, so for example, I've shared this example to multiple people. You know, we have a great mighty network, Martinez Evans and 300 pounds and running is his Instagram account. He had 30,000, roughly 30,000 followers and was doing all the things, like all the things related to content. And actually in his case, it was only when he built a community, the slow AF run club that all of the opportunities started to to actually expand. So there is at like this notion of like, first I have to build an audience, then I can have a community. That's shifting to actually, if I can also build a community at this point and have that unlock my ability to drive a following, drive a larger audience that, you know, for Martinez, it's resulted in, you know, a six-figure business, an Adidas global ambassador relationship and uh, a book deal that actually came because they knew he had not just a following, but he had a community as well. So I think that, I think these things are, are changing. And I think it also speaks to, and this is what I, I love. And I think it's in the comments as well, which is, you know, it's like, what are you comfortable with? I think the big thing though, is the data is objective on the following front. Creating a community takes less content than building an audience, full Mm -hmm. stop. And the amount of money that you can make as a creator to scale and sustain your lifestyle is easier. More people can be successful with it when you start with a community versus 
content alone. It doesn't mean you can't get there with content. It's just harder and takes a hell of a lot more work. Yeah, that was, a, um, that was a great example. I was going to ask you if there were any creators out there you thought did a good job or transition of this. Zoe, are there any that you've worked with or any that come to mind for you that are good examples? I think at the moment, I'm kind of watching what's happening more in NFT land than the creator space. Just kind of, I'm just fascinated by what's happening in those kind of communities. And I think that, you know, I'm part of a few uh, at the moment. One is called CPG Club, which is NFT token gated. And it's an NFT that you buy and you basically use that to then unlock access to the community, which at the moment runs on Telegram. And it's a fascinating space just to kind of look at how everyone is so excited to be there and to be amongst everybody else, that everyone's starting their own channels, having their own sub chats, coming up with shared ideas that we can do together as a community. And I think it's just a really great example of a small community that is really passionate, really powerful. And everyone is honestly just so excited and enthusiastic to be in it. The energy is just infectious. And again, I think it just comes back to that idea of creating reciprocal ties between community members that makes a community more valuable and much more sticky. For me anyway, I think that's the value that I'm getting out of it, as opposed to putting one person at the top of the pedestal. And then that's your reason for being, if that makes sense. Yeah. The other thing that is inherent in that example, Zoe, and I think for the Slow AF Run Club as well, we talk about it. We have a whole framework in terms of building community called community design. And the first kind of most important piece of any community is a big purpose. What is the motivation for this community? Who are you bringing together? What are you going to do together? And in this moment in time, more prescription around what your members are going to do together is actually like going to make it more successful. And then what are the benefits of of being a part of that community. So Zoe's example, like I can tell you like, okay, it's for people who are super interested at the intersection of CPG and Web3. When you showed up, you know, again, and I love to think about this as like, it can be done with, you know, two tin cans and a piece of string. Some platforms make it easier, some platforms make it harder, but when the expectation is set that like, hey, we're gonna show up, Collabs happen here. So if you reach out to somebody and and want to do a collab, they're probably going to, to your point again, Zoe, reciprocate with like, yeah, let's do this because that expectation has been set. Yeah. This is the norm of this community. And then for what purpose? Well, I can think of the more any strategist sitting at the intersection of CPG and Web3 gets smarter about that intersection, what happens? Well, they're probably going to be able to add more value to their clients. They're probably going to be able to, you know, start to experiment early in new in new projects and new things to pay attention to. That's going to actually attract a greater following. And in attracting that greater following, they're going to probably have some business opportunities or Dan, in your case, you know, whether that's sponsorships or speaking engagements. So all of that came, like I've never been in, CPG, like I've never been in that, but it's very clear mm. what that is. And so for the folks that are asking the question of like, how do you do this? Like, how do you build a community? There's such a narrative around how hard community building is. Building generic communities in 2022 is impossible, but building communities that have a big purpose, who are you bringing together? What are you going to do together? And what are the benefits of, for me, of doing those things together or for you of doing those things together? That is 
90% of what creates a thriving community. And the other 10% is being really clear and really prescriptive with what we do here together, building that culture. Um, And that is the power of modern, you know, community design that is only going to get more and more important from here. Yeah. And I really like the the examples that you've given uh, previous times that we've chatted. So you talked about the fact that one of the things that people should think about when they're building their own community is in 12 months time, what do I want the members of my community to have achieved or to be able to do that they couldn't do prior to actually being a part of this joint venture that we're doing together. So I really like that idea of kind of setting a shared goal. And then Gina has also described, you know, being a community leader or creator as kind of like being a host at a party. So it's not just about you standing up on stage as this host of a party and everybody watching you. You are buzzing from room to room, introducing the right people. Oh, have you met so-and-so? I think you might have something in common or we're doing party games over here. Does everybody have enough snacks? You know, that kind of stuff. And I really like that idea of, again, thinking about it as you as a host, as opposed to you as the star. And that kind of changes the dynamic a little bit. But again, it means that you can take your foot off the gas, but it also means that you're still creating a huge amount of value for the facilitator role, you know, that you're playing as well as the content that you're feeding in as well, which I think is great. And for those asking, CPG is uh, consumer packaged goods. Yes like your snacks. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm glad that you both brought that up because it makes me think about at least moving yourself from the start of the host. I think that's a lot of the framework and thought process for Web3 in general and how a lot of creators are thinking about how to operate in this landscape. That said, I think we all know that Web3 itself has definitely generated its fair amount of detractors and debate, especially in recent times. Um, it'd be interesting to hear what both of you think about that. Gina, we can start with you. What are your thoughts on some of the discussions that have been going back and forth? And how do you see that changing or not necessarily changing, but how do you see that playing out in the future? Yeah, I keep coming back to any of us could spend literally hours, days, weeks, months trying to just keep up with like the debates that are happening and should I pay attention to this show? And and here's the conclusion I've come to. I don't care. Uh, Like, I don't care about centralization versus decentralization. I don't care about the debate. What I care about is coming back to first principles for community building and saying and asking, okay, what is the big purpose? What's the motivation for this community? Where do we want members to be a year from now? What are they able to do then that they can't do today? What is the foundational culture of this community? And because of the things we want to do, because of our big purpose, does it make sense to have shared upside? Does it make sense to explore new governance models? And if it does, great. Take advantage of, you know, how to think about a social token or an NFT or a DAO that's okay. That's great. But I think for any of us trying to stay current on whatever, you know, whoever has the latest opinion about the thing, like it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And, you know, when I reflected on where I spent my time in 2021, the number of things that I paid attention to that in hindsight did not matter was higher than probably any year before. Mm-hmm. And so if if anything, what I would say is 
reinvesting that time, reframing my relationship and thinking about these new dynamics as how do they move community design forward? How do they move people's lives forward? What are the things that really matter? And anything that is abstract or, you know, elephants fighting, who cares? Yeah, I think that's fair. It's so easy to get caught up in the drama, especially on platforms that are designed to have algorithms that feed into drama and feed into polarizing maximalist opinions about things. Exactly. I kind of agree. I mean, I I find the divisiveness weird and I just can't really wrap my head around it. And it, it feels like there's always these ridiculous critiques and then this kind of infighting. And I'm exactly the same as Gina, where I just think it's about choice. Uh, It's another layer of infrastructure. It's other levers that we can potentially pull. There is some stuff that you can do on blockchain around tokenization and gating and other bits that you can't do without it, which may or may not be useful in the near future. And I always come back to uh, Packy McCormick's writing on Web3 because I just think he's, he's a wonderful writer in this space. And he released a piece, I think it was yesterday or today, which was a rebuttal to Professor Galloway, which I just loved. And, you know, he said, let's just stop fighting because this is silly. You know, let's just actually have a think about what we can build out of this. And every single time someone comes out and says, Web3 is awful because of these two bad actors that have come out this week. It's exactly the same as saying the internet is awful because 4chan exists. You know, so let's just throw the whole thing out the window and forget about it. There's always going to be bad actors. There's always going to be good actors. You know, technology, as the saying goes, is neutral. It's what we do with it that matters. And I think we have to look at it at that. And what I really loved about his piece that he published yesterday or today was he just said, all we need to do is we need to look at, is it net good in terms of, even if it's three percentage points more net good, is it more net good than what we have now? Does it open up a few more possibilities than what we have now? Is it opening up a little bit more experimentation than what we have now? And to my mind, the answer is yes. So I think it is well worth exploring. And I think a lot of the negative aspects that are being thrown at it in terms of speculation, environmental degradation, you know, crypto bros, all of that kind of stuff, everybody is aware of it. Everybody wants to fix it. And so I think we just have to run in that direction and be hopeful and be optimistic and kind of build for the best that we can get out of it, as opposed to just thinking it's blanket evil and trying to shut it down. Because that's not how we pursue innovation. Well said. I couldn't agree more. So we have around like eight, nine minutes left. I do want to save some time for questions. So let's jump into that. There was one here that I thought was interesting. Really want to get your thoughts on this one, Gina. I said, are you worried about subscription burnout? Instagram just announced they're doing a creator subscription program for US-based creators. Will we have 20 or 30, even 40 subscriptions, even at a dollar or $5? It seems expensive or hard to manage. This is from Julia. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think there's a risk of it for sure. So what is happening though, I fundamentally believe that what is going to help creators shift to a sustainable model is again, not just subscriptions. It is what are you subscribing to? So for example, in the case of Instagram, one, those subscriptions for the creators that you know and love, it's going through Instagram. That creator might be, might have a larger audience so they can earn money that way. But if the algorithm is not showing you to enough people, who cares what your subscription is and whether or not those people can see it. And also at those small dollar amounts, you're fighting for pennies. Whereas what we have seen is this model of an independent creator that is building 
a sustainable practice and a sustainable community on the value that the community members are finding from each other, you know, our median monthly subscriber rate is $40 a month. So it's a little bit like apples and oranges. And I think that if anything in a world where there are subscriptions everywhere, you're going to see subscriptions that you can you can buy with as little friction as possible at sort of one end of the market and subscriptions that are incredibly valuable, not just because of the creator, but because of who that creator can bring together in and what they can deliver in terms of value to their members and what members can deliver in terms of value to each other. I think it's the right way to go. But again, I'm biased in that regard. That makes sense. Zoe, any thoughts on that? No, I think uh, Gina is probably the person to go to on that question. (laughs) Another question here that maybe was on a similar lens, but maybe there's a different thought on this. Thoughts on the platforms themselves, the algorithm-based social media platforms that have new subscription models or have new types of dynamics that is their way of trying to either segment or form the type of audiences or monetize the most passionate community members on those platforms. Yeah. So here's what I would say, just having, again, had a front row seat to these platforms when they had no people on them and now that they have people on them. And, you know, some of my best friends work at these platforms. Here's what I would say. One, they're trying to preserve the status quo. The anything that they are doing is not because they fundamentally believe that creators are their future or that they're cre- they're seeking to create sustainable businesses for creators. In many cases, it's because they're terrified of TikTok and specifically the fact that TikTok has been able to help people build massive followings very quickly, whereas those larger those additional network effect platforms like Instagram or Facebook or Twitch or Twitter, very difficult to do that now. So a lot of these things are really being generated out of fear and defense, like trying to defend their business as opposed to a fundamental belief that creators are the engine of the economy and that they are the new entrepreneur that, again, and you can just look at the details. Does anybody get any email addresses? Like this is about lock into those platforms, not about helping creators. Yeah. And that is probably to a service. And, you know, in many cases, it's not because they're like mean people or they're evil. It's because these businesses were set up from day one to have users and advertisers. And creators are essentially super users that they just don't know what to do with. So what are they going to do? They're going to throw money at it at creators until they don't have to, which is what they've done on every other initiative going back over a decade. So it's just a question of like, do you want to trust your livelihood with platforms that, you know, in many cases have made so much money that they just don't even understand or comprehend what the world looks like at this point? Yeah. I think that's the frame of lens to look at this type of thing, right? What are the incentives of the platform that is launching this and then relative to what are the incentives of other platforms that you could likely do what on the surface may seem like a similar thing, but when you actually look at it on its depth, it really is very different. Zoe, question for you here. Someone asked, I think that we're part of a similar 
Twitter circles that trash the idea of brand purpose, as many brands may use that for lip service. But is the community way of thinking, the community economy, more the way to bring alive that brand purpose and bring more of that to life? Potentially. I think it just, again, it goes back to what is the point of having the community? So, uh, you know, let's be honest, the vast majority of brands, businesses exist to make money. That's that's their whole, you know, raison d'etre. Um, it's all about growth in many instances. And I think, you know, the, the brand purpose piece that came about, which was super popular maybe five years ago, was all about, you know, we want to sell toilet roll and heal the world at the same time. And obviously that just wasn't accurate. I think when it comes to community, again, it's just thinking about what is the role of the community for that brand and business. And let's be realistic about what we want to do with this community. So, you know, a community for a brand could be more purposeful purely by making sure that you're creating a community of, you know, super users who can feedback on product decisions and product innovation, for example. That could be a community that's relevant for a brand. It could be that you do a brand community that's around a passion area. So there is a clothing brand called Hot Topic who have created a Discord all about anime, which has got nothing to do with their brand, but they know that it's an adjacent passion area for their consumers and they kind of want to get into that in an interesting way. You know, Reebok have got First Pitch, which is a new website at the moment where they release designs for new sneakers. And if you like it as a sneaker, you can bid on the fact that you want that sneaker. The first person to bid on the sneaker gets it for $1 and then $2 and then $3 all the way up to $500. And then if it gets to $500, they will make the sneaker. And if it doesn't get to $500, they won't make the sneaker. And that's kind of a sustainability play, but also getting the communities to kind of drive that decision-making side of things as well. You know, there's a brand called Modern Fertility that's got a Slack channel, which is a closed community for women who are struggling with fertility issues. That's about creating a safe space, but also understanding from those women what kind of products and services and thought leadership would be valuable to them and kind of building their brand and their business around that side of things as well. So I think it's just, it's a case-by-case basis. It's not necessarily about enlivening brand purpose. I think it's just about being more purposeful in terms of, do we want to build a community? If so, what is the reason for that community existing? And then how do we start to design it in an intentional way that that is the result of what we get from it? Those are great examples. The hot topic one, especially. I didn't even think of that, but it makes perfect sense just given the audience they have. Well, that was great. The hour flew by and thank you so much for participating and being part of this. And thank you everyone that had great questions. I think that made this so dynamic and fun. So appreciate everyone. There will be a recording of this afterward that will be available. But if you have any questions, um, I think most of you know who we are, but if we can just do a quick plug of where people can find you or if they want to learn more, we'll start with you, Gina. Yeah, just mightynetworks.com or Gina B on Twitter. Awesome. I'm always on Twitter. I'm prolific and probably on there way too much than is healthy. So I'm just at Zoe Scamen on Twitter. And for me, you can find me on Twitter as well, at Runcy Dan. I also write the newsletter, Trapital, weekly breakdowns on the business of hip hop, music, entertainment. You can find it at trapital.co. Thanks, I'm everyone. Actually, I'm reading one of your pieces at the moment, which is excellent on Westbrook. So everyone should read that. It's very good. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's one of my favorite ones. It was really good. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. 
copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapilo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.